Hello and welcome to another episode of the St. George's Rod and Stop, the official podcast of the Church of St. George the Martyr in Kales River, alongside the chaplains of St. Mark and St. Monica. I am Lindsay Shooters and I am very sorry for leaving everybody in the lurch last week. Um, I was dreadfully ill. Um, I probably wouldn't have made it through the conversation uh, about the, the, the liturgy. And I decided to spare everyone from my yeah my state. Um, I apologize, but we will make it up to you this week, which is the third Sunday of Advent. It's also Ember Day. And my co-host, the Archdeacon Rodney Whiteman, is on board to explain what Ember Day is. Good morning to you all. Uh, thanks, Lindsay. Good morning to you. And I'm glad you're recovering. It is interesting that uh, in our in the Anglican prayer book, and of course, this indicates that it's been part of our tradition for a very long time, uh, that Ember Days are the, th- are, are the third Sunday in, in, in Advent, the second Sunday in Lent, uh, the Trinity Sunday, and the 26th Sunday of the year. And they are preceded by a Wednesday and a Friday. So Ember is um, sort of the English version of a Latin word, uh, the, the, the last part of the word, which seems to capture those four times, those four major times in the liturgical calendar, um, as I said earlier on. What, what is this all about? On these days, prayer is offered for those to be ordained at that time. Uh, for for vocations to the ordained ministry and for theological colleges, for those preparing for ordination and for all serving in the ordained ministry. Another way or a more older way of talking about this is for those called to holy orders. And then you in, when you go through the, the colleagues, uh, that we, that's the, those are the prayers that are I prayed you would find the essence uh, around the um, the things I've just read now, vocations, people being ordained, theological colleges, and so forth. And whilst talking about that, just to say that one of the current challenges, and it was building up challenges, um, is how um, seminary, you know, people being sent to theological colleges for training, residential training, uh, not just academically, but uh, learning the rhythm of the life of an ordained person, Uh, you know, prayer, work, um, uh, play, um, study, uh, rest. These are the the rhythms of the ordained life um, that we are taught uh, you know, I was at seminary for three years, so one would have hoped that within three years that rhythm is instilled in us. Um, mm. And and so yes, so Ember Day is is a day that looks specifically, and I'm glad um, you know what I just uh, re- revealed to you now. There's an important aspect for me, and I take very very seriously uh, the whole uh, the the call to pray for vocations to or the, the holy orders or to the ordained ministry of the church. Um, as the world has gone on, we've um, got very little um, uh, responses or very, um, very few people who are willing to say, I'm going to test my vocation. You know, when I was, when I matriculated um uh, I was directed into this way because people whom I was with at the time felt that I had a call to the vocation. So I, I started out very, very young, con- considering a vocation to the priesthood. And there is our prayer book, a prayer on on page 113, which I, 114, sorry, which I just love. Um, you know, because I I was a fellowship of vocation warden, where I tested the vocations on behalf of the bishop in preparation for selection conference, people who had a sense of call and went through the bishop with an input. I came through it with colleagues of mine uh, through a two-year process, a three-year cycle of preparation and discernment about vocations. 
And this prayer, Lindsay says, Lord Jesus, you called your disciples to take up the cross, deepen in each of the sense of vocation. And you know, the sense of vocation is very much related to our baptism because um, our, our theological understanding of baptism includes um, the understanding that our baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the church is uh, as it an ordination service as well. Um, so, mm-hmm. and I think vocations are an important aspect for all of our lives. I mean, I in, have been engaged, you've been engaging me in a, on a real deep one-to-one in our conversations over this time in this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I have no doubt in my mind that you have a vocation to be a, a journalist, uh, you have an, a vocation to to enable people to discover truth in the stories that you tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that there is within each of us a sense uh, of what are we called to do with our lives. Um, and and then there's those who would explore the deeper sense of that. I think, you know, while I'm just having this long-winded uh, response mm-hmm. to your question, um, people are thinking about how teaching is done this, these days, how nursing is done these days, how being doctors. These were all considered uh, vocations because they, the, you know, the first point of call is to care for people compassionately, yeah. teach people with inspiration. Um, but but many are in. But many are now saying. The people who get into those jobs don't have that sense of vocation where they are meant to care, uh, given their academic um, uh, formation. Uh, their heart, uh, you know, and their mind is not focused on people. It's m- more focused on, am I going to get a better salary? And so there's, yeah. you know, there's a concern that we've moved away from having the sense of call um, to where I must have a job that pays me well, um, mm. that whether I treat people with respect and dignity is just uh, a by the by. And some people, even in, in, in those who become ordained to the priesthood, it's not really about focus on the people. It's about the position they hold because it position in people's minds give you um, power. Uh, you know, and you can demand respect according to some people, but that's not what vocation is about. Uh, simply said, for me, the best words that I could ever find is from Jesus in Mark's gospel, uh, where he says, uh, chapter 10, um, the son of man came to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that 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 you say that because I'm I'm actually in a process right now where I need to do a presentation about the editorial strategy, and like I've been reflecting a lot on what exactly my role is, and it's something that that is difficult for. So I consider myself to be a, a, a writer first and a journalist second. Like the journalism is just something that's inside me, like a compulsion to like find out things about the world, just a curiosity. And then that manifests itself in like stories that I've used all that energy on, like acquiring the knowledge and then retelling those stories in a way that is immediately actionable or useful to somebody else's life. Um, But as you move up the ranks to like an editor, which I am now, you, you write less and there's less time to follow your curiosity um and like your your role becomes more like shaping other people's kind of writing like finding the stories within like their stories and bringing that to the fore and presenting that to people and like elevating other people and like building the platform so that others can kind of shine um which is it's it's a it's a difficult transition for someone who like me who's like tied a lot of his professional identity to writing exploits, like content creation exploits. 
Um, and it's been a time of like introspection for that. But but uh, it's also interesting that that it's all of this now falls like on the third Sunday, which is joy. The theme is joy, mm-hmm. and especially in the two stories, or at least the two readings, uh, the Old Testament reading, which is Isaiah 35 verses 1 to 10, and then um, the gospel reading, which is kind of Jesus affirming the fact that he's the Messiah to John, which is very weird when you look at how things have been shaped to this point, like John was maybe supposed to know he was having a bit of a crisis at that stage. Uh, But just John and Isaiah are the two voices from the wilderness. And in like the way it's been told, the way like American culture has kind of shaped the vision of what that wilderness looks like is um and the, in the Isaiah passage specifically, he speaks of the desert. Like it starts with the desert will rejoice and flowers will bloom in the wastelands. The desert will sing and shout for joy. It will be as beautiful as the Lebanon mountains and as fertile as the fields of Carmel and Sharon. Everyone will see the Lord's splendor, see his greatness and power, give strength to the hands that are tired and and to knees that tremble with weakness. Tell everyone who is discouraged, be strong and don't be afraid. God is coming to your rescue, coming to punish your enemies. and then he like goes on the whole thing of like the blind will be able to see, the deaf will be able to hear, uh, which kind of Jesus kind of echoes um, in in the in the gospel passage when we get to that. Uh, but it's just this 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 vivid imagery that 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 he's painting. Like streams of water will flow through the desert, the burning sand will become a lake, and dry land will be filled with springs where jackals used to live, marsh grass and reeds will grow. There will be a highway there. It will be called the road of holiness. No sinner will ever travel the road. No fools will mislead those who follow it. No lions will be there. No fierce animals will pass that way. And it's just all this flowery language. And you get the sense of, and, and it, it's something that I appreciate, like the art of like Orbi Orbelhalzer, the photographer, and um, like other people who, who have a deep sense of connection to like the Karoo landscape, where it's arid, it's dry, like it's not this lush and green, like jungle paradise of exotic fruits, but there is like an exoticism to it. There is like this other nature, it's an other world. You really have to, you have to look at the details to appreciate. And we were having a conversation just before we started about how I got <laughs> completely soaked yesterday in the rain, just like walking all of 20 meters to the car. Uh, because Joburg thunderstorms, like afternoon thunder showers, are just insane. But it's so beautiful, and I appreciate it so much because of its like metronomic nature, and like joy, finding joy in the in this is a very long-winded way of saying, this, uh, but finding joy in the situation you are placed is about appreciating the details. And and I think that's what what is so appealing about Isaiah specifically, and in secondarily John the Baptist because he's not really like he doesn't have like an entire gospel of his own. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but it's 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 that it's that it's that simplistic view of the natural world and them finding the wonder within it that 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 I think really makes them stand out as two as as two like really strong characters in like the whole Bible narrative. Yeah, uh, I I had the privilege of submitting um to the resource a word and worship which is under the auspices of Ecclesia mm-hmm. at the University of Stellenbosch and we are an, a number of clergy from different denominations who are following the uh, revised common lectionary 
where we draw texts from um, through the seasons uh, of the of the electionary year A, B, and C. And this week, the 11th of December, is my submission uh, recorded in this book. So the, the this text is what I focused on in terms of um, liturgy structure as well as oh, sorry liturgy content and structure and then also thoughts on how do you what what are we what what are, what does each of the texts to us how can we learn from them yeah and I I said in my introduction to this that Advent anticipates a prophetic rhythm mm-hmm. in which God in in, in which is inclusive of creation. Uh, when you when you look at the people, um, as it were, the experience of exile is an experience uh, metaphorically picked up as the death and the wilderness. How mm-hmm. do people develop and grow under oppression? Um, when they are beaten into slavery and um, forced into labor, mm-hmm. when, you know, these all conjure up pictures of our own past, although I haven't felt a whip on my back, but they're certainly in the legislation um, forced into a particular thing that I would not have chosen for myself, and there was no freedom. So how does the um, so so Advent brings brought me into and I I just love those words a prophetic rhythm um, mm-hmm. because when you look at every pro- prophecy there is a rhythm in it uh, mm-hmm. the rhythm that seeks to breathe to breathe hope you know words do, do make a difference and they conjure up a vision um, they tell us a different story to where we are. And uh, uh, something we can hope for, um, mm. trusting that the, the the one who guides the prophetic voice uh, uh, would lead, would would bring about the promise that that is being made in the prophecy. Now, related to these readings that you said that you that we have for this week is the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. Mm. Um, in the barrenness of her own life, uh, being a woman who's not supposed to feature in any way uh, in society. Uh, Yeah, she, uh, uh, you know, heralds the kind of um, dynamic of God's presence and work in the world, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit mm-hmm. rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's looked with favor on his lowly servant. And then she says, from mm-hmm. this day onwards. So, so now that hope, and and uh, and even in the midst of of the suffering, the the the, the message, the prophetic uh, rhythm. Would would sort of make us stand tall, uh, thinking thinking about new ways that is possibly coming our way beyond what we are going through, which pulls our spirits down. So yes, in those in I mean that Magnificat is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. Um, And I think these are the hymn the hymn that. Tell out my soul, the, the you know uh, was is the one that we sing. So, so I think I I think that you know um, does 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 prophetic rhythm does the poetry that comes through in scripture is it is it meant to put us on an illusionary trip of of reality, or does it actually conjure up uh, a hope which we can we can work our way to? We can respond to what is positive, even in a desert-like thing. You know, I don't know deserts that much. Mm. I lived in the Macoland for a while. But you know, the time when the blooming of the daisies, I was just fascinated, fixated on, because in Cape Town, we don't see this 
daisies would grow, but there they would grow in a bush. And yeah. and and, and I, mean, I took I used to go out every year when I was there for the four years and take photos of that bush yeah. that just drew my attention. And all around it is rocks and stones and hills yeah. and you know dried soil. And so yeah, the flower will bloom in the wasteland. Yeah. Ah. And it, 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 it's 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 interesting that that you 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 picked up on 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 that kind of theme of like all this flowery poetic language where like again for probably the third year running um, my daughter asked yesterday whether Jesus was born on the twenty fifth and then I was gonna go into my whole thing of like no um, Christianity did take a lot of things like from paganism. Um, and but when when you go down that that kind of route, it's like you look at the winter solstice, the winter and summer solstice um, over that period, uh, and the festivals were happening then already um, that were then just co-opted. Uh, you you it it unveils this idea that not many Christians are willing to accept. So you get Isaiah and John the Baptist. Right, so they were out in the wilderness, and they were effectively pagan because they were getting a lot of inspiration from nature. You look at just the the historic landscape um, where Israel was, because like for like Christianity is supposed to be like the new Israel as well. Like from if you you have to put yourself in the mind of like a simplistic person who's living in this oasis in the desert because that's effectively what Jerusalem was um there's some some arable land there and you can farm and stuff and they it's all part of like the fertile crescent and it was like a very rich area but culturally they were quite isolated from everybody else so they grew within this desert environment and they lived quite simply um, and they didn't have massive advancements in like military technology because like the just the sheer distances and like the harsh landscape between different populations at the time was like a natural barrier to a natural defensive barrier. Like you really needed to to want to overthrow somebody and like take a piece of land like you, your very existence of society needed to depend on it to like go there. But then you get like the and the Egyptians who had established centers of power nearby, um, but their advancement in technology and societal advancements were just like on a different plane. Um, and obviously, even the, the Persians, and obviously when they start just marching, like, a lot of them don't even know that like these cities exist. <laughs> yeah. They were just yeah. like, how far can we send our army? <laughs> yeah. And they like come across these people and they're like, oh, they don't have any freaking decent military. So we're just going to conquer them and they can like build our cities, yeah, our outposts. Um, and we'll take some of them back to like do all the manual labor there. And it's that that victim. Um, that that Christianity kind of spawned out of that wow. is has been lost um, where it's now become the dominant kind of um, religion of the world and now all this <laughs> this unqualified arrogance <laughs> kind of comes along with it and and then you have like the Jesus which draws from, and this is why this, it's important to have that connection to like the voice crying out in the wilderness. Um, you have this Jesus philosophy that draws from like that simplistic way of living. It, it takes like the essence of that, of like caring your fellow man because you're like in the same bad situation together, being oppressed, your very surroundings. Um, and the, the universal love and like care that comes out of that and he marries it with a changing world where these outside influences have now come 
uh, not necessarily to corrupt, which is a very important distinction to make because, again, <laughs> go find me a passage where Jesus actively discriminates against another person. <laughs> like, don't worry, I'll wait. <laughs> Um, yeah. And and yeah, like like people forget like where the philosophies were actually born out of, and then lose the way to like get back to to those core like foundations. Yeah, you, you know, um, over years one is one is, has had um, that question: whoever whoever pens history first um, is the one that seems to have and hold the power uh, of description. Um, those who are still thinking about it and verbalizing it orally, um, you know, you still have to prove your case, whereas somebody's mm -hmm. put it down on paper, whether they're right or wrong is, is, another, is another thing. So, in in response to what what I'm saying is, there must have been a situation in which people in what people may experience um, the dilemmas of you know oppression, war, violence, whatever it is, and and coming out of the desert experience and being this voice in the wilderness that is a you know it's an I suppose in one shouts in the desert, it's an echoing voice. It's mm -hmm. a reverberating voice. And it draws people to want to hear what does this voice saying amidst the experiences that they are having, where they're having to deal with many voices, mm -hmm. uh, especially the voice within them uh, and, and the voice within a powerless person, a person who's whose who's, who's, um, life is just filled with fear, the narrative of fear, because of what they see and what they hear and what they experience. The, the silence they're forced to have pushes this fear yeah. so deep down that the fear begins to uh, either move them to suicidal behavior or moves them just to shut themselves off and just continue looking forward to the day of their death. And mm -hmm. then you, you get this voice in the wilderness um, where there was freedom to speak. He shut in a prison cell because he dared to speak morality uh, in the face of rulerships that are um, ab above contradiction in their own mind. And was hope now silenced? Uh, that that voice which preached a kingdom coming, that voice which was the voice of preparation for the world to receive a savior, that voice that dared to bring a different narrative to the one that was existing, where. Um, People had nothing to look forward to. There was nothing, nothing in their current narrative, lived narrative, that they could um, hold on to day by day as as a, as as a um, you know. I'm in, I'm in the current situation. I've been there yesterday. Will tomorrow bring a change? Will there be a better way forward? So, is the prophetic voice? God coming into a situation that has been shut off by these rules and regulations that restrict humanity, that um, oppresses the context, uh, that the only voices you hear is those of the oppressor, and the only um, sounds you hear uh, is of their violence. Mm. And so is John disillusioned in a prison cell um, he cannot see his, his road has cul-de-sacked into the prison cell, the one that says, prepare the way of the Lord. This voice, this presence between testaments, um, which reverberated from 
a cold, lonely uh, wasteland of a desert, but one of the most powerful voices throughout of the centuries is silence. Mm. You know, and I remembered, um, I can't remember the full summer, but I remembered very, uh, you know, when, when I read this text of Matthew, for example, John's imprisonment, I remembered that during the struggle times, Alan Busak preached about this. Uh, trying to understand when a voice speaking to truth, sorry, speaking truth to uh, truth to power, is imprisoned. What does that person seek in a prison cell? What what are they looking forward to? Um, is Matthew's writing? Uh, after the event that Jesus was baptized um, in the, the story in John's gospel, where we see an encounter between Jesus and John the Baptist. Mm. I think a prior encounter was womb to womb. Mm. Uh, and this, this, so obviously from, from, from the Matthew, from the John, the, John, the John passage and from the Matthew passage, John was aware of the presence of Jesus and Jesus was aware of the presence of John. We don't get clear narratives about how they engaged and how they, you know, how they understood what the road of the other was. And, you know, the, the, the other thing that, that, that strikes me was, you know, what, what, what is it about this passage which says Jesus did not seem to make an attempt to get John out? Jesus didn't um, get conjured. <laughs> I, 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 I'm always tempted to call foul when... <laughs> When the relationship between between John and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus, is is brought forward, where it's like there's you know there's a lot of controversy about that Elizabeth and Mary encounter. Yeah. Um. There's a lot of controversy about their relationship. Um. For me, just from a philosophy perspective, if I look at it as humans right even within like the journalist world right now and even if you take it back to like the struggle like i've i've, I've had the pleasure of of um listening to a alan busak sermon it was at a funeral um of one of his friends um one of my friend's parents and like i i always like like i i was conscious of the the mirth of alan busak and then he spoke and everyone was like so in awe of him speaking, but not about what he said, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and like that's always been the, the thing for me. It's like I, I don't understand his role within like the, the struggle because I wasn't there. I don't understand his significance at the time. I don't understand maybe how radical he was. Um, but if you measure him against, like, an Ashley Creel, who was far younger, but kind of came up at the same time with similar kind of messaging, um, you always have with moments like the struggle, within moments like any major happening, you'll always have, like, two voices we have a multitude of voices telling the story, um, and and here you can you can see Jesus and John the Baptist as like two preachers, two philosophers roaming the same kind of countryside, and knowing of each other, and speaking towards each other, and like having these weird messianic ideas, um, which was entrenched by like centuries of 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 like prophecy and maybe misguided um, use of of words uh, where they aware of each other, they appreciate each other's message. Um, it's just saying the same things and they were 
actually communicating to each other, but everybody else watching it was like, oh no, they are actually cosmically like tied to each other through like this weird sort of the one pointing to the other uh, kind of clear the way wayfarer vibes. But but there's no contradiction between what they say and and how they at least how the story is told, the the overlapping of of what they were on about. I mean, Jesus comes in the Gospel of Mark to say right at the beginning, the same words John came to preach, repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Yeah, because yeah. they were both scholars of, of scripture. From from a the, so we go back to vocation now. The calling yeah, they, were, they were both drawing from the same well, so of course the water was gonna taste the same. But then, like John was just a lot more militant, um, with pushing forward the views, which Jesus was a lot like Jesus had a he had a better understanding of like the optics and like the the broader kind of uh, public relations strategy. <laughs> But what does that tell you about vocation? The call in your heart. Mm. Because look, the call in your heart is discerned and explored to to make sure that it is. And then, of course, education, a formal education would come. And, and, and the words that you're called to speak, the words, the message yeah. you're called to interpret. Um, uh, you know, so so the 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 the, the only time, the, not a contradiction, but it was it was the conversation at the baptism of our Lord when Jesus John says, "Look, I can't baptize you, really," mm-hmm. um, and Jesus says, um, "For the righteousness of God, this has to be fulfilled. So go ahead and do it." And John mm-hmm. listens to that. So when John participates in the baptism of Jesus, what what emphasis does it play on the message they brought to this world? You know, John was preaching to bring people who had had, had understood, you know, wrongdoing in their lives was getting them down, and he brings them the hope of repentance and of forgiveness through. Uh, the the message that he that he ministered and the baptism that he performed, uh, and so in doing this, um, Jesus is the one who, as Lamb of God, becomes the scapegoat for all those who are, uh, who, you know, sinners. Uh, going back, so the reference to the Lamb of God goes back to the Old Testament times. So John, um, as it were, is one major part of tying the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But when you're in a prison cell, given all the hope you spoke out there when you had the sense of freedom, uh, makes you think about your message. You think about, hey, you know, what is this all about? And so even in John the Baptist, there is, if only I just hear what's going on. Go and check out if Jesus is really the one. What was, what what did, because he could not see, the only thing he could do was ask to hear. Yeah. And so he had to trust his disciples to do justice to the question he was asking and to do justice to the message they were bringing back. And in that prison cell, uh, the, the dawn of a new hope came for John, even as he faced his death. Tell John. But remember, remember again, this is. And <laughs> I, I didn't want to go here, but I'm going to. <laughs> go for you, it. You need to understand, there, there is no, there is no evidence of the baptism. There is none. None really? whatsoever. There isn't. There, where? <laughs> what what evidence of the baptism do you need for it to be evident uh, to be in an historical event? So it was written that passage, that story. All these connections were made long after the fact. 
It was not told immediately then. These are just fantastical stories written about like these heroes in a certain culture that have now taken hold in, in the world. It's the same thing with like the, the, the story of Hercules, for instance, um, where, where it's, it's an oral tradition culture of like glorifying like these, these giants within your society, you know? Of like our king once slayed a minotaur, and like like those sorts of stories. Like the Bible, it's exactly that. And the the the, the tenuous link between like John the Baptist, you you have two figures. You have a John the Baptist figure. There is historical kind of evidence for this kind of figure. You have a Jesus. Like their timelines overlap by like a narrow like the narrowest of margins like if you really go and you review the historic like evidence um then you have the two kind of overlapping philosophies and you you kind of have the situation where john the baptist was so revolutionary and he was he was maybe just a decade ahead of when that message would have really started a a groundswell um, within society. And Jesus comes afterwards and he's walking that path, saying the same sorts of things, but the population is more receptive to it at that moment. And like the, then the revolution catches fire um so like again like i will always defend john the baptist because he was out there doing it first he he could have been a, a, a lot less um arrogant and like a lot less the parat <laughs> in terms of spreading his message <laughs> Um, but then you have a Jesus who was like a, a softer kind of approach, more more engaging with like the the, the powers that be. But I, I think at, at the Jesus time already, like the Romans knew the gig was up. Um, they were just trying to like exit stage left and like put a puppet government in place. And yeah, they 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 got a bit found out in in the fullness of time. Um, but did they really fail? I don't think so. You know, what is interesting about um, what you said for me is how um, generations look back mm. from our perspective with all the newer ways of researching stuff and historic, for mm. historical meaning. Um, look back at stories like the Bible, um, which formed in oral tradition and then captured as a witness of what happened to the past, how now that witness is being uh, challenged uh, uh, in terms of its historicity. Um, lots, of, lots of time, you said it, lots of time has passed between when the event happened when the story was told, and when we read it today, we seek the significance and meaning of it, but modern day would want to choose to say, well, if there is no historical uh, evidence of this, um, you know, it makes it hard to believe. Or what, why did these people choose then to tell us the story in the way that they did? And and what does it say of our current time when people will look back at this generation of ours uh, because of his technological advancement? Um, now we can put things into the cloud. Uh, the assumption is that people will believe what our stories are going to be around. And yet, when we read these narratives, uh, you know. I must say, I find great hope in them. I do see within them people, you know, one of the things of looking at the biblical text is to ask who was involved in that story. 
Um, and and of course, we would go back and say, well, you know, research has shown this and research has shown that. And and and, and on the on the other side, now of course, history matters to us. But you know, even recorded history, as I said, the one who puts the pen to the paper first seems to have the understanding that their story told makes it more credible than the one who chooses to reflect and then write later on, or may not have the reason to write it down, but really tell the story uh, orally. Children capture the world through storytelling before they actually read things and yes. see things. So it's about listening to the narrative that is being told that impresses the child's imagination. And so, of course, we have delightful questions coming from children when mm -hmm. we tell stories, uh, because now they too are looking for uh, historicity. Um, but but I, I, I must say that, you know, one has to understand that in each of our generations, the oral traditions that will become written will be reflected upon generations to come and then they too will say, well, we have a standard of, re of research now that would suggest there's not enough to suggest that that actually happened or whatever it is. Because right now, yeah. for example, one of the things that I hear people criticize is that when they look at a photo, then they will ask, is this a cut and paste? So now you need mechanisms <laughs> to look at photos to check out whether they're real or not. Um, yeah. so, so now I, I would say, so is the witness of the texts we're reading today a credible uh, when, we, when, when people retold the story, when they dared to write it down? What were they trying to tell us and what were they seeking to leave us for our own journey in current time? Can we draw significance from them? Can we draw hope? Because at the end of the day, however you reflect and research, your heart is still looking for hope. Your heart is still wanting to experience joy. Your heart is still wanting to feel the essence of peace on an everyday level amidst all the things that are happening. That is how I see John's call for the disciples to say, you know, is this the end or is there someone out there who's called to take the message further? Um, and what did he say? I mean, Jesus' message was not, oh, well, we're planning to get you out of prison or we're planning to overthrow this government. That's a puppet government. Said, no, the blind see and the deaf hear, the lame walk and the dead uh, um, and, the, and uh, yeah, and, and I mean, the, these manifesto begins to, 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 to show itself now in relation to Luke chapter 4. So the stories of the healing of people, of wholeness being brought to people, um, so the focus of their ministry, as they ministered to empower people, so the systems that oppressed people will be challenged to change or be challenged to be defeated. Um, but at the same time, the same time as I say all of this, John dies a horrible death. And mm. so the story is both one of pain and yet one of hope. Mm. That's why it's like a flower blossoming in the wasteland. Yeah. And it's, it's about those details. Uh, like I said earlier, it's, it's about finding joy um, with, within those details. It's, it's, it's not getting upset because, oh, Lindsay is trying to discredit every, I'm not discrediting. I'm, I'm trying to impart a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation for what is, what is actually important, like within these stories, like, and, and to, to admit that they are stories and that aren't like indisputable fact. And like basing entire rules and regulations around the fallacy 
of um, the undisputed word of God, you know, uh, because that doesn't exist. It it just plainly does not exist. Like we we must take the value out of out of these stories, and and it's it's in the philosophies, it's in the details, it's in someone thousands of years ago celebrating the desert, you know, <laughs> and mm. its beauty, and and equating like healing rains. Um, quenching things to like the wonder of God and appreciating that kind of perceptiveness to to the cycle of life that 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 we all live in and and unlocking unconventional value in a really oppressive landscape. And I think that is where I will leave you this week because my the laptop battery is also dying. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is just quickly to say, look, I, 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 yeah. I, I, there's no way in my mind that I would discredit what you're doing because, you know, this is an exploration. This is to say, yeah, uh, look at the story. What value does it hold? And is the historical basis for it? But I just want to say for me, scripture mm. is not just that story. It is also bearing witness. And mm-hmm. and so we need to find out why did they leave us this legacy? Why why would they want us to engage these stories? You know, and, and even in the midst, and this is what I'm thinking about, even if the situation around me does not change, um, and yet I have a belief in the God of the liberation, if I don't have that belief, Will I then go down under the narrative of the day and lose my sense of self? But my heart yearns for the God who understands, um, you know, and this is the witness of Scripture. And so I I hold on to that hope, um, even when my situation may not change. Um, You know, so can I then end off by saying, give strength to to hands that are tired and knees that tremble with weakness. In that context, we are called to stand up, even if it doesn't change immediately, even if it doesn't change forever. I still need strength in my hands that are tired and my knees that tremble with weakness. Mm. Thanks, Lindsay. And your soul magnifies the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah. I was just waiting for I you to say that. Rejoices <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Um, As always, the choice verses of the readings are in the podcast description. And we will be back next week.